Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Good morning, everyone. I am so pleased to have Ken Falk on the podcast with me today. Ken is the founder of Bouldercrest, in addition to the chairman of the board for Bouldercrest Foundation. He is the former chairman of the board for the EOD Warrior Foundation and author of Struggle Well, not to mention many other hats that he has worn along the way and continues to wear. But Ken, welcome this morning. Thank you, Sherry. Thanks for having me this morning. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure. Um, It's just going to be you and I this morning. Uh, Mike is out of the office today, but we're going to get rolling. And the first question that we always lead into is just for you to have the floor to tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I I am a native. I was born in Pittsburgh, and uh, my dad is from Chicago. My mom is from Pittsburgh, and my dad got out of the Army in 1962 and moved to Washington, D.C. to be a policeman, and my mom and I followed him down here. So I actually grew up just outside of Washington, D.C. and uh, Alexandria, Virginia, and spent um, most of my life in Alexandria before I left uh, in 1980 to go to Texas uh, to try to play professional ice hockey, which didn't work out for me, and went on and joined the uh, Navy in 1981, a year later. my family, my wife and I got married in 1983, only uh, two years after I uh, enlisted in the Navy. Uh, my first tour in the Navy before getting into EOD was in the Ceremonial Guard here in Washington, D.C. And from there, I I, um, I went to the EOD community, and that's where I spent the rest of my career, 19-plus years. Uh, Julie and I have been married since 83, as I mentioned. We have two daughters, uh, Jenna. And Rianne, Jenna is a mom of four, so we have four grandchildren as well. Jenna lives here um, near us in Bluemont, Virginia, which is nice. We can see the grandchildren quite a bit. And our youngest daughter, Rianne, is uh, just settling out in, in Los Angeles. So that's pretty much my story. I did retire from the Navy in 2002 and started a, a company that ended up doing pretty well and, and really have since I left that company in 2010, I've just been doing this kind of philanthropic work at Boulder Crest and EOD Warrior Foundation and a couple other small nonprofit boards that I sit on. Mm-hmm. Well, you live in a beautiful part of the country too, Ken. Bluemont, Virginia is probably one of the, the most beautiful places I've seen and been to. So um, very fortunate to have your grandchildren close. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of friends who have their grandchildren all over the country, and I think the more I think about it, I think it would be tough. But, you know, Julia's parents lived in England when we had our children, and I know it was tough on them having mm-hmm. grandchildren a long way away. So right. it's definitely nice to have them here. It is. It is, and they're so darn cute. They're just precious. Um, well, Ken, you and I have known each other for over 30 years, um, and Julia as well, and I'm very proud to call you my friend and have worked under your leadership um, as well. And one of the things that I always admire about you is that you're very goal-oriented and you set goals. And can you just elaborate a little bit on that and why you believe so passionately about setting goals and following them through? Uh, Yeah, I can, I can surely elaborate on that. I, you know, I, I enlisted in the Navy, and I had my first chief in the ceremonial guard was very, um, very much a um, a goal setting individual, and he used to challenge all of us to. You know, back then we had these small little memorandum books that we called real books, and he used to challenge us to write our goals down, and um, not only the goals, but people in our unit that would could help us achieve the goals. And, and then to write and break down the success, um, side of the goals or, you know, the failures, whatever occurred during the, the, the attempt to complete the goal. And, um, and, and not only would he challenge us to do it, but he would come around the, the unit, uh, and he would check to, to see what you had written down and see if he could help you achieve your goal. And 
I was always kind of impressed by that. And then as I started, you know, educating myself, whether it was in night school or whatever, you know, one of the, one of the things that I've studied academically a lot is the, you know, science of leadership and, um, and all the things that go along with, you know, kind of being successful as, as a, as an individual, as a company, as a family, whatever it might be. And one of the things I read uh, when I was up at Harvard Business School was a really interesting paper by, by a guy who basically summarized uh, his abstract by saying that the one, you know, there's all these books about the seven habits of highly successful people and all these different mm-hmm. stories that everybody believed. But he, he distilled this down, this Harvard professor distilled this down, that the one thing that they continually see from the most successful uh, organizations and leaders is is short term goal setting exercises where where these goals are set in in a very short period of time months uh, weeks months uh, kind of year maybe and not these long term goals um, and that people that finish and complete short term goals tend to get to where they want to go a lot quicker and that's uh, that's really you know the science behind it so for me. It makes a lot of sense. So, you know, individually uh, and as a family every year, we kind of set goals. And then as a business, you know, every year we we conduct a strategic planning conference. And although we do set some goals for the three-year period, what we really focus on is what those one-year goals are going to be. And then on a monthly basis, you know, we get together as a team um, and any organization that I've led, get together as a team and make sure we're on track to complete the goals and for folks that are struggling to complete their goals, you know, what, what the other rest of the teammates can do to help them. But I think at the end of the day, what I believe today more than ever is that successful people are very good at setting and achieving short-term goals. And, and again, those are measured in days, weeks, and months, not, not years. I certainly appreciated that skill that you, uh, you know, conveyed to me and it has certainly helped me along the way. So I appreciate that. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. I think, you know, what really what these goals do, I always tell people, is they, they prevent that proverbial proverbial life of the of the tail wagging the dog, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you get up every morning with this understanding of what needs to be done. And, uh, you know, although things occur and, you know, what we refer to as externalities, things that we can't control that come in to our days um, might set us back a day or two. But if we back up and on our feet and moving forward with that goal, it's 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 amazing how you can, can achieve them. And it's, you know, what even, even workouts, you know, if you're, if, if it's a physical goal, you know, that I want to work out every morning and get up, you know, at least if we write it down and we check it off every day, we know we've done it. It, it really makes for, you know, for, for a nice log. So Ken, certainly in your career in the Navy and entrepreneurship with AT solutions and shoulder, sh- shoulder to shoulder, and now you're filling Anthropic uh, adventures with um, the EOD Warrior Foundation, also Boulder Crest Foundation. I, I, all of which have been incredibly successful, and I just am always curious about how you how you personally measure success when you undertake, uh, you know, a business venture. Yeah. It's um it's interesting, you know, because we, we teach at Boulder Crest um through our Warrior Path uh, program that's that we measure and define success as, you know, doing better today than we did yesterday. And I think that's, you know, really one of the things I feel confident that's kind of kept me, you know, as grounded as as you can be, um is is to really not measure success by you know, by money and, and really look at it as a, as an impact. And, and that's really what I've been trying to do all along with the goal setting is that, you know, is, is the impact that we're investing in, uh, and, and the services that we're providing, uh, is that impact making a difference to, um, to, you know, to the people that we serve. And that's really what, you know, how I measure success is based on the impact of, the, the complications of that that go behind the scenes, you know, are, are, are a lot because we have a lot of things that we measure from the number of people we serve to how well people get, you know, after they go through our programs, uh, 
when I was at AT Solutions, you know, people that went through our training programs, we measured their uh, their knowledge before they came into our program. We measured their knowledge after they came from our program because we wanted to make an impact because we were sending, helping send, you know, men and women to war. And we wanted to know that they, what we provided them for training would allow them kind of to come back. And philanthropically, I think, you know, Julie and I have looked at all of our endeavors, all of our investments, you know, that way we, we for quite a while we've worked hard and donated a lot of money to you know nonprofit efforts specifically you know the EOD Warrior Foundation and Boulder Press but several others as well and we look at at, at all these investments very similar is, is there really an impact and and that's why you know that I'm so specifically today so focused on Boulder Press because what I'm trying to do is ensure that the investments that we make here are in fact changing people's lives because if they're not, you know, I, I just don't, at this stage of my life, I just don't have time or the money, quite frankly, to just, just allow people to come to Boulder Crest and have a fun week in a cabin, um, you know, on my dime, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I think family vacations and all those things are great and that's all well and done when you save up your money to go do them. But, you know, my personal money is not going to be spent for the rest of my life on bringing other people here just for vacations. I want to know that people are, in fact, getting better and doing the things that, that, that warriors should do when they come home from war, which is, you know, to kind of to be that productive member of society here that they were on the battlefield. So we have a lot of metrics. I think we track at Boulder Crest, we track over 250 different metrics of impact and, um, and, and based on how those metrics go, we change and modify the way we do things. And, and really that's how I measure success is, are we making the impact that we said we were going to make? Right. Well said. Boulder Crest Foundation was the vision um, from you and Julia. And I know that it originally started as a kind of a respite and relaxation facility um, to allow our combat wounded service members come from Walter Reed and Bethesda and other places to have um, a relaxing week or weekend. But as time went on, that has evolved and changed. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Yeah. Well, they, you know, I give Julie all the credit for, for the idea. We, um, I think, as you know, um, we had a couple of really rough years in mm-hmm. Afghanistan um, and a lot of amputees from about the years 2010 to 2013. Uh, I had left um, AT Solutions at the time, and we had a, you know, I was here at home a lot, didn't have a job, and Julia and I uh, started bringing families from the hospital out to our, our home, uh, out here in Blue Mountain, Virginia. And we had, um, as you seen sure, we had a you know, big place. We had a hundred acre mm-hmm. or 200 acre state with a big house and two guest houses on the property. And, and we started bringing these families out. It started off as like weekend barbecues. And then it went from weekend barbecues to, um, overnight stays. It went from overnight stays, uh, with one of our Navy uh, EOD techs, uh, dads, um, came out and spent a week with me deer hunting. And, and that, all those stays in our house, um, inspired us to build these cabins down on, on the, on the land that was furthest away from our house where we had basically pasture land. And initially we were going to build one or two cabins and just kind of have them for respite for, for the EOD community, but I think as we got to realize the size of this problem, uh, we knew that, you know, just trying to serve the EOD community probably wouldn't be enough, and we mm-hmm. decided to open the facility up to any and all combat veterans. So we built the facility, and then we decided that we would do two things. We would allow these families to come out for respite and stay free of charge. They had to get there on their own dime and buy their own groceries, but the cabins were there for them uh, to stay in free of charge. And the second thing was that we wanted to allow small nonprofits, which we had measured as a million dollars or less in annual revenue, 
but smaller nonprofits that were doing innovative things to come and use the retreat because Julie and I were getting asked a lot by nonprofits in the veteran community to donate money. And what we thought rather than donating money is we would donate this retreat and allow the, the, the organizations to come and use it for free. And we did that because in most of the organizations that we spoke to who were doing retreat-based programming for veterans told us that the most expensive costs were, uh, were the facilities and food. And because of that, we, we thought of for the nonprofits, then at least that would be our contribution to, um, to their programming. Okay. So that's kind of how it all started. Mm -hmm. We were doing a, uh, program for caregivers one, one weekend. It was a Friday, Saturday and Sunday program. And I came in to say hi to the, the nonprofit leadership that was doing the program. And when I came in, they had just finished breakfast and there was a young lady sitting in our music room uh, by herself. Now, most of the, I think there were, there were either six or eight participants in it. They were all young wives of guys for the most part who had lost limbs, except for this one lady. And I went and sat down with her and I was sitting in the corner and I said, um, what, uh, how's it going? How's the weekend? You know, I introduced myself and she said, Oh, this place is so beautiful. Thanks for letting us use it. And I said, well, how's your weekend going? And she goes, well, you know, really, I wish my husband would have lost his legs. And I mean, every time I even say this, tell this story, it makes my jaw drop. And my jaw literally dropped. And I said, wow, I said, it's terrible. Why would you say that? And she goes, well, all the other women in the program kind of know what's wrong with their husbands, but nobody knows what's wrong with mine. And that's when I said to her, I said, well, what, what is wrong? And she said, well, the doctors say he has PTSD. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he, you know, he's an asshole. He's mean to me. He's mean to my kids, you know. The break's giving me good, but I don't want to go back home. It was just, just a horrible story. So I, the next day, Julie and I were in Frederick, Maryland having lunch, and there's a, a beautiful little museum in Frederick, Maryland called the Medical Museum of the Civil War. And in the window was a book titled PTSD from the Civil War to Vietnam, and I bought it. And I read it, and and I went on a journey because I thought, well, we can we should be able to help with this in some form or fashion. There's got to be something. And by then I'd done quite a bit of research and I kept hearing over and over again from people who were in the mental health community that, you know, the the treatments that they were using weren't working well for veterans. And it just was starting to get really frustrated. And then they started publishing these suicide rates. And, you know, at the time they were saying 22 veterans a day were, were, were killing themselves and, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I just, I, I literally went on a journey. I had researched a lot about PTSD and I went on a journey and I went to the top schools in the country, academic centers, medical centers that were doing research on PTSD, Harvard, Chicago, San Francisco, uh, UCLA, San Diego. And every, every medical professional I talked to, whether they were a PhD therapist or a psychiatrist or psychologist told me the same thing. What we're doing for veterans doesn't work. And I finally said, well, if, we, if, if it doesn't work, why in the hell do we keep doing it? And you would hear answers like, well, it's the only evidence-based care we have. It's the only thing the insurance companies reimburse us for. It's the only thing that the VA is authorized to use. And I just thought that that wasn't good enough, that, that you know, if something's not working, uh, you got to find a better way of doing it. And, you know, as a guy who comes from this community, the EOD community that's that's our motto right and and this whole concept of failing if, if, if we're, if we're going to fail at something then we want to make sure you know, if we do fail at something we want to make sure that we never do that again and that's the way our profession the EOD profession was created it was created in the blood from world war ii bomb disposal guys who who had had number two observers who sat there and watched them go through these step-by-step procedures and if, if on step three the bomb blew up they never did step three again. They, they found a way of, of correcting step three. And that's really what I wanted to do was figure out a way of doing it. So on my journey, I met several really impressive people, including this doctor named Rich Tedeschi, who had coined this term post-traumatic growth, which I was really intrigued by. And I brought them all together and told them what I'd like to do. And they helped us basically create a program. And we took some of the lessons learned from the, the organizations who had been here in that first year and some of the things that they were doing, 
and then we created some of our own things, and then we just started testing it, and as things worked, we kept them, and if they didn't work, we got rid of them and put something else in place. And finally, we got it to a place where we were seeing some really interesting, you know, outcomes uh, to include, you know, people who had stopped drinking completely, who were having some really bad substance abuse issues, to people who couldn't get out of bed in the morning, who were back up in the gym five days a week and had been employed. All these kind of, you know, impacts, like I mentioned earlier, and success, successful impacts that, that we were, we had hoped for. So to make a real long story short, we coined this term or name Warrior Path. Uh, Path stands for Progressive and Alternative Training for Healing uh, healing Heroes. And the concept is that it's a training program because what we believe is that the opposite of suicide is is actually living a great life because if you're living a great life, you won't take your own life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really what our program is about. It's about training people how to live great lives. And we got a big donation from uh, one of the founders of Depot, Bernie Marcus, to study the program, and we studied the program over an 18-month period with two clinical psychologists. And what we found out was that from an impact perspective, as far as symptom reduction goes, our program was about three to five times as effective as traditional mental health, traditional cognitive processing therapy, and prolonged exposure. And more importantly, the the post-traumatic growth side of our program was through the roof. Tedeschi, who had coined this term 30 years before I met him, said that in his 30 years of, of science, scientific research, he had never seen a program produce post-traumatic growth results as, as well as ours was. And we were really the first people to take Tedeschi's research and apply it. So, you know, Tedeschi had researched families who had lost children to cancer to primarily understand what they, how their growth occurred after their, after and during their grieving processes. Mm-hmm. And, when I said to Tedeschi, I said, I understand that you've studied the outcomes of this, but do you think we could teach people how to fast track it? How can you, how can you live, teach people how to live a life understanding that post-traumatic growth could occur? And that's really what we were the first people to do is to create this program that was, that was, was really focused on teaching people how to, how to, how to fast track kind of growth in their lives during and, and after um, the grieving process of trauma. Well, thank you for that. Uh, well, for sure, I know the EOD community, both active duty and veteran status, has benefited from the PATH program. Um, Bouldercrest and you have been incredibly generous to the EOD Warrior Foundation to set aside various programmatic offerings throughout the year that are specific to EOD technicians, both male and female. And then you have family PATH programs in addition to couples paths. So, um, we certainly appreciate and have seen incredible growth with with the folks that have benefited from from the PATH program. So we um, believe in it and encourage people to uh, apply and attend and, and take a chance on really living a life that they deserve. So I know that you explained what PATH is and and how it all evolved. And if you could, if you could pick out a couple of things that makes PATH stand out from other programs, what what would those be? Well, I think so. We go back kind of to the story. So when you when when I talked to these psychiatrists and psychologists, what I kept hearing, you know, during the comments when they would make that you know things weren't working, was was really twofold. One was the stigma that everybody talks about that's associated with mental health care. Mm-hmm. Now, most of the time when we talk about stigma, we talk about the fact that, that, you know, people don't want to admit that something's wrong with their head. They don't want to go to a head doctor. But the truth is, in, in, in most medical uh, uh, interventions, there's stigma, right? We, mm-hmm. most They say most men don't want to go to the doctor, period. Right. Um, so, you know, the, the, the mental health community has, has kind of led us. And, and by the way, I'm not a big fan of traditional mental health care, so I don't want to uh, sugarcoat anything here. Mm-hmm. But the mental health community has led us to believe that stigma only occurs with mental health. That's not true. Stigma. I haven't been to the doctor in five years. Mm-hmm. Shame on me, but the truth is that's the truth. Now, a, a friend of mine who's a medical doctor says he wished that men took as good as care of their bodies as they did their cars. 
and I'm guilty of that because I do take better care of my car <laughs> than I probably do my body in, in respects to maintenance. I don't I don't go to the doctor very often. Right. Um, but I'm also well. I don't I don't feel like I'm I'm sick, so so that's the the issue. Um, the other thing with stigma that I always tell people is that sticks stigma. One of the reasons people don't go to to other doctors is because they don't trust the system. Um, and, and that's a big part of stigma, I think, lies with the providers, the mental health community itself, is that, you know, it's kind of like this 50-50, you know, split there that maybe some of it is the, the men or woman who, who doesn't want to go because they don't want to tell anybody something's wrong with their head. But the other part of it is that, that as, as humans and, and Americans, I'll say specifically, we don't necessarily trust um, the system as as maybe as well as we should or, or could. But it's the truth is that that there's not great outcomes in the mental health care system, and that message gets translated. If somebody goes mm-hmm. to a mental health doctor and they come back and tell their friends how screwed up that intervention or that experience was, then that will prevent other people from going. So the stigma thing is the bigger problem. Mm-hmm. So the stigma was one that kept sticking in my head, and then the other one that we kept hearing was, this term that the mental health community uses, which is a lack of cultural attunement, meaning that in the mental health care providers world, the, a lot of providers outside of the VA don't understand military culture. So as we started building our program, the two things that I wanted to take on head first were stigma and this cultural attunement. So um, from a stigma perspective, our program is not a therapy program. It's a training program. And we did that intentionally. Most military people enjoy their next training course and look forward to the next training course. And we thought our training course would, would in fact, you know, be a great training course to teach people how to live great lives and, and a life of wellness. And that's really how we took that part of it on. It's not therapy. Now, are there elements of psychotherapy in our program? Absolutely. But I think that those are well-educated, you know, well-researched efforts that have, have found the right place in our program. And that's because our program was really designed by some of the top clinical psychologists and therapists in the country. And then the second one I wanted to take on was this cultural attunement thing, because I had seen it firsthand to where organizations had come to Boulder Crest with therapists and it took, but these therapists by the end of a week still didn't have the trust and reliability from the participants in the program that I would have liked to see. So all of the people that work at Boulder Crest are in fact combat veterans as well. So we could, we take that off the table really quick. We don't allow the chest beating to come in here and say, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm this part of the service or I'm a special ops guy or I'm an EOD guy. And I made 15 deployments versus one, you know, none of that stuff because everybody here is on the same kind of level and, and wavelength. So we don't get any of that cultural attainment. So those were the two big things we took on. One is to create this really sophisticated peer-based model that was a training program, not a therapy program. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the next thing is we've got two beautiful places, and these places are really important. When we did the 18-month study, the doctor said, I said, if you could distill down the study and why it works, what would that be? And they had come up with what they called the four Ps. And it was people, place, program, and the philosophy. Mm-hmm. So the place is in all, and I said, is any of them more important than the other? And they said, no, they're equally important. So the place is equally important. And we've got these two beautiful places and they're in the outdoors and the Blue Ridge Mountains and the, you know, Santa, Santa Rita Mountains in Arizona. And it's not like going to a, you know, a hospital or a therapist office where you're sitting under, you know, fluorescent lights and, you know, if you're lucky enough and you got a good therapist on a leather couch instead of a vinyl one. So <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's a big advantage to the program. So the people that deliver our program, the people we recruit for our program, we recruit people for our program that are really, that we feel based on a, a 250 question questionnaire, we feel that, that have the ability to achieve post-traumatic growth in their life. So there are some people that don't qualify for our program and those are, people who have severe mental illness, specifically severe diagnosis like bipolar, Mm -hmm. severe bipolar, uh, schizophrenia, things that we don't have the resources for. 
we also, if you need to detox, we, we don't take anybody who's, who's got a lot of substance abuse issues. So we have to get them detoxed before they can come here. Um, but the third group of people we don't take, which I think is important for this audience, or what I refer to as professional wounded warriors. And these are the folks that just are looking for the next free thing and the next free handout um, from, a, from a nonprofit or from an organization. And we root them out. Uh, we root them out by asking one simple question that starts the conversation, which is how many retreats and how many programs have you been on? And we've had people who, who have answered 25, 26, you know. And wow. if you ask the individual, you know, well, why do you want to come to Boulder Crest? And, and the answer is, well, dude, you know, I went hunting three weeks ago and I've been home three weeks and my wife's getting on my nerves. That person's not going to do well in our program right. um, for a lot of reasons. Um, that, that, you know, I'll let the imagination deal with. But we, we, um, we get the answer from that individual that says, well, you know, you're right. I've been on 25 other programs um, and none of them have worked, but I've heard great things about Warrior Path and, you know, I really think this is going to help me. You know, mm-hmm. those are two different answers. So the latter guy or gal, you know, would in fact probably qualify to come. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the one question that we ask that really gets the conversation started. Sure. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful when I talk about professional wounded warriors, but, you know, like you, uh, Sherry, you know, we've been around the most severely wounded guys who have gone on to do some remarkable things. And I just don't buy, um, I just don't buy this victim mentality. I just don't think it belongs in, in, the, in the combat veteran, uh, you know, world. Right, right. No, I know exactly what you're talking about and can relate to to that for sure. Um, if I if I can, I wanted to step back for just a second, Ken, because I think it's important for our audience to also understand that the staff that you have in specifically your path guides that lead the program, um, if I'm they have to complete the path program before they are even eligible to apply if a position were to open in that space. Is that a correct statement? It is. It's a correct statement. Our, our path guides um, and our, our, our whole process is very military because of our backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but our path guide um, qualification process is very similar to the way you would become a military instructor. You know, you go through the course first. Um, you sit through the course maybe a second time. You teach it maybe a third time. And by the fourth or fifth time, we normally... Uh, you know, we have other instructors sitting in the back of the room that will help you through the modules. And by the fourth or fifth time, you get qualified, uh, kind of qualified to teach the course. So for military instructors that are listening, you know, the, our process is very kind of similar to what you went through. Right. And, I mean, with that, the PATH guides, once they were to become part of your staff, they too have to, you know, still continue to work on post-traumatic growth. That isn't something that gets put by the wayside. It's kind of like they walk the walk and talk the talk. So it's it's very much a peer-to-peer sort of situation. And, you know, I, I think it's great. It's a great. It's a great model to have. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we hold our instructors really accountable. I mean, every day they do check-ins. Right. I know that we've talked about PATH, and we've talked about serving different demographics, and we've probably talked more about military, but you also have programs available for first responders, and are there any other demographics that you would like to share with our audience that may be interested in the PATH or could qualify for the PATH program? Yeah, so on the warrior path program, we, um, we serve uh, combat veterans, um, and they could be active duty or veterans, National Guard. We don't really care what service they came from. We did add, uh, first responders to a warrior path program after the Vegas shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did just run, thanks to the Gary Sinise Foundation, we just ran our first all first responder uh, program, uh, recently. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a lot of first responders over the years, but most of them have been, military veterans, which, you know, you know, the police departments and fire departments tend to get a lot of, but we just ran a program in uh, Arizona a couple of weeks ago where they were all first responders. I think one of those six was, was a, a military veteran. The rest of them had all grown up in mm-hmm. law enforcement. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, as you mentioned, we have a family path program. We do a couple of those. We only do those in the summer when the families are normally together, um, normally designed. I believe strongly that, that individuals who have PTSD um, are contagious uh, inside their families. And we feel strongly that if you don't you know, talk to the whole family at some point in time, uh, it's very difficult to uh, just hear one person in the household. So we created this family path program. We run a couple of those in Arizona and a couple in Virginia every year. And then uh, and in conjunction with Songwriting Soldiers, uh, we run a path program for couples and caregivers only. Uh, and caregivers is a very broad term in our definition. We, we've had gold star parents. We've had, um, we've had, uh, wives. We've had siblings. We've had also, uh, mothers, fathers, you know, of, of wounded soldiers. We've had a lot of different demographics that kind of fit into our caregiver. But, you know, our caregiver program is really, um, you know, done on a three day weekend in conjunction with songwriting with soldiers and, it's been good in the couples program. I think it's been really good. We've done a handful of those with the EOD Warrior Foundation and all the couples programs we've done. I've really, really been grateful for them on the last day as they finish and sing their songs. Mm-hmm. No, it's been incredible to witness also, Ken. I've been fortunate enough, to, I think, to attend and be present for each one of those EOD couples retreats with Songwriting with Soldiers and um you know, I would consider it, you know, one of the highlights of my life for sure to see the transformation that happens. But, um, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of music. So, um, you have me at, you have me at music. <laughs> so, and, and learning, you know, I mean, just expressing yourself through that is just incredibly powerful. And I know, uh, you've written some songs with them and I had the pleasure of writing a song with, with, um, Maya Sharp and, it's it's something that lasts forever, and it feels good to get your feelings out on paper. Yeah, yeah, and it's great. It's a great program. I think out of all the things I've seen since I've been doing this type of work, um, I think it's the it's the one program that you know, for lack of a better word, kind of breaks people open to mm-hmm. this kind of open and honest and trusting. Mm-hmm. 2020 has been a crazy year for everyone. I think beginning in March. Um, the whole world kind of paused for a while. And from a nonprofit standpoint, you know, it really put a different spin on what our programs were going to look like for the year. And I'm sure that was no different for Bouldercrest for sure. So how, how have you managed um, and Bouldercrest managed through, you know, the COVID situation and, and what does 2021 potentially look like for you guys? Well, I, you know, I was in California when COVID really broke out and I was on a business trip in, in Los Angeles and I wasn't a hundred percent sure I was going to get a flight home. I was mm-hmm. going to have to drive home. But as I flew home, I did get on a flight and as I flew home and, and thought about the crisis and, you know, what I was hearing on the news, what I, what I really did was what I would do in any kind of crisis, which was kind of, take a breath and think about, you know, how we're going to get through it and, and, um, and come up with a plan to do that. And we did that. We, we shut down at Boulder Crest March 15th and didn't open up again until the 1st of June. And we're still only open for our warrior path program. And I'll talk about that in a minute, why we did that. But we, um, we basically took some of our own medicine that we teach a warrior path. And that is that in times of struggle, taking me, and prepare for what the next phase is going to be. And, and we did that not only for our programs, we did it for everything, for our fundraising initiatives, administratively, what could we do to become a better organization? Because I knew we were going to have a couple months where we weren't doing a lot. You know, there were no mm-hmm. fundraising events going on. There was no programs going on. So we had this great staff that wasn't really able to do the jobs that they did on a daily basis. And I said, well, let's look inside and, see if we can come out of this in our own post-traumatic growth, come out of this crisis as a better organization. And we have worked very hard um, to, to do that, uh, starting with fundraising, uh, because we couldn't be face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Uh, could we do anything to um, motivate? And we've spent a lot of money in doing online you know, systems uh, for fundraising and online events and 
I'm happy to report that here we are um, on track to meet our our goal for the year, and 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 actually uh, we're a little bit higher than we were this time last year in, in regards mm-hmm. to fundraising. So I feel really good that we've taken a hard look inside and, and kind of trying to become a better version, and we're going to continue to do the things that we've learned mm-hmm. on the programming side because the COVID-19 is so contagious. Um, the first thing we did was said, you know, let's not get families back to back in the cabins and facilities like we normally do. And we're not running our path programs. We, we allow families to still come here for the respite. We call it family R and R the rest of the connection stays. Uh, so we stopped that completely. And in June, after a handful of crisis calls from people who had been on our waiting list to go to Warrior Path, because COVID, I think, mentally has really challenged a lot of people who already had some mental challenges. Mm-hmm. And we just didn't want to keep waiting. So we thought, you know, we, we consulted with some doctors, medical doctors, and did created a standard operating procedure to operate through, uh, through COVID. And how could we... Um, as safe as possible, run some programs. So we started two weeks out before people came here, looking at symptoms, we checked their temperatures every day and checking for symptoms every day. And then two weeks after they leave here, we stay in touch with them to ensure that they didn't, you know, uh, become positive mm-hmm. with COVID. And so far, so good. Since June 1st, we've ran a program. We're running back-to-back programs, um, both in Virginia and Arizona. And since June 1st, we haven't had a case of COVID. We did have one employee uh, test positive who stayed home for a couple of weeks. And um, luckily she hadn't been in the office in a couple of weeks either. So mm-hmm. she had tested positive and stayed home for a couple of weeks and came back once she was, once she had tested negative. Mm-hmm. So that's how we've kind of got through 2020. We are going to open up our family in Oregon and Thanksgiving. So we'll have families here at Thanksgiving and Christmas um, only for 2020. And uh, and then our goal is on January of 2021 to be back to normal. And all of that said, uh, I think it will depend on, you know, how things deal with COVID. So I will say this, in Virginia, as a state as a whole, we're doing pretty well. Arizona, not so well. Okay. Um, so we monitor Arizona a little bit closer. Arizona as a state isn't doing as well as Virginia. Mm-hmm. But it looks like things are, in fact, coming down most places and that's what we keep uh keep watching so mm-hmm. hopefully by 2021 we'll be back to normal and the only thing that'll prevent that is a you know massive spike in uh in, in COVID-19. Sure and I mean we can only hope and I like what you said about you know taking a step back and really looking at how your organization could you know continue to thrive even in a crisis and sometimes it's very easy to have like a knee-jerk reaction and panic. And we did the same thing here at EOD Warrior Foundation where some of the some of the things that we had to do, we had to be more creative, find virtual platforms. Fundraisers had to be a virtual um, situation for the most part. And I think, honestly, there will be things that carry over in 2021 regardless if COVID, you know, uh, resurfaces or what have you that have been pretty effective. So instead of maybe focusing on the negative, you know, we've, we've really, really tried to focus on the positive and, and appreciating the pause so that we could collectively come up with good ideas. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that has worked for Boulder Crest as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I think it's the right thing to do. No, no need to panic. I think mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's it's been a horrible crisis, um, and and I know it's a very contagious disease, and people are dying from it. Um, but we've got you know a lot of people that are suffering, and we're trying to do the best that we can do to help them. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, you've talked about the locations in Virginia and Arizona, which I've been fortunate to be at both, and they're both incredible and beautiful. Um, I love Arizona as much as I do do Bloom Hunt. And um, we know that in 2019, um, PATH, the PATH program was expanded and you joined forces with other nonprofits who got qualified to actually teach this curriculum-based program. Can you tell us a couple or all of, of the organizations that are doing it in addition to Boulder Crest and if there's 
um, plans for expansion on that? Yep. So we have um, a project going on that I'm leading right now, which is to expand our Warrior Path program to eight additional sites around the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, for, so we'll have a total of 10. So we're trying to cover geographically cover the United States better than we have. And we were licensing out our Warrior Path curriculum to these eight other sites. And so far, we have um, four that are up and running. Uh, one is in um, Gainesville, Florida, called uh, Gratitude America. It's a small nonprofit out of Jacksonville, Florida, that delivers the, uh, the programs in Gainesville. And they do, each of these sites will do one Warrior Path program per month, and they're funded to do, to do that. The second one we brought on was uh, uh, Zach Brown of the Zach Brown Band, uh, Camp Southern Ground, and um, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And folks are going there as well. I think we've had some EOD uh, folks there. I think there might even be an EOD guy working um, at Camp Southern Ground now. So they are up and running. Uh, the third one that we brought on board this year was... Um, a group up in Maine, Travis Mills Foundation. Mm -hmm. Travis is a um, quadruple amputee who um, was given a beautiful estate in Maine, uh, Rome, uh, Rome, Maine, about an hour from Portland, Maine. And he has uh, raised a lot of money to renovate that and turn it into a family uh, wellness center. And they do their family programming in the summer, but they're also going to do the warrior path programming year-round. So Travis Mills foundation is now up and running uh, the fourth one coming online next month is the big red barn retreat in columbia south carolina just outside of fort jackson we're really excited uh with the big red barn retreat they've done some really interesting work for drill sergeants a wellness-based program for drill sergeants at fort jackson and we're really interested in learning some more about what they're doing with the drill sergeants program trying to continually improve our, our warrior path program. So they're a new partner. And then early next year, we're bringing on another group in Washington state out of gig Harbor, Washington, just South of Seattle, uh, called the PTSD foundation, which stands for permission to start training, hmm. uh, foundation. So we're excited to bring them on board. And then we're still looking for a few other partners. We're talking to some groups in Texas, um, Arkansas, uh, Missouri, and New York. So um, more to follow on those ones, but those ones I mentioned are all be up and running by the spring for sure. Fantastic. So if someone was interested in applying for the PATH program, Ken, would they go to Boulder Crest Foundation to uh, find a PATH program or how? what is the best way for them to apply? Yeah, the best way is to go to the Boulder Crest website, and, and, and I think one of the top tabs is programs. You mm -hmm. hit that, and then it puts you in the Warrior Path application. And then we do share uh, applications uh, with our other partners. They all have their own recruiting process as well, uh, but we do share applications with other partners. You know, if somebody's in Florida or in Atlanta, then obviously we don't have mm -hmm. to spend the money on a plane ticket or something. We'll try to get them to go. That's the whole concept is that try to minimize some of the money we're spending on travel sure. uh, for, for Warrior Path. So mm -hmm. to geographically disperse these organizations so we can help, mm -hmm. um, help more people and help build community too. So if more people go through Warrior Path from Atlanta, Georgia, at Camp Southern Ground, and those people can stay connected afterwards and it's kind of creates this really great cohort going forward. Mm-hmm. Well, and just for our listeners out there, specifically our EOD technicians, both active duty and, and veteran status, you are eligible to apply for any of the PATH programs. They don't have to be EOD-centric. So certainly if you are struggling and you need help and feel that the PATH program could potentially benefit um, you and your family and your life, please, you know, please apply and, and reach out. So... Just making sure that folks know that, Ken, because I know that EOD techs get integrated into other other programmatic offerings that you have as well. So it doesn't have to be EOD-centric for them to apply. Yeah. No, I think it's uh, it's really good. And we've seen great success in both ways. You know, mm -hmm. the all-EOD program, I was really worried about because I was thought maybe guys didn't want to share, you know, in mm -hmm. front of each other, that knew each other. Uh, 
but those have been some of the most powerful programs we've done. And then the EOD guys who show up in ones and twos mm-hmm. and, and work into the other programs are always, you know, admired by the other soldiers and sailors and airmen that are in the program. So it's, sure. um, you know, just apply. If you need to get here, apply. That's, that's, uh, we'll make sure you get in the right programs. Absolutely. So um, I know we're getting um, to the end of my questions and that sort of thing, but I, I couldn't end the interview without allowing you to talk about Struggle Well and the book that you co-authored with, with Josh Goldberg. And really it's a focus on, you know, post-traumatic growth and how you can um, have struggle to strength. Well, we wrote the book, Sherry, because we were asked all the time that we think what we were doing would that um, translate to more of, of, of kind of a civilian community? Mm-hmm. And we thought, well, yes, we think it will. We've had some civilians come through our programs, uh, including a former NFL football player who's gone on to do some remarkable things. And we thought, well, you know, yes, it would, but how do you share that word? You know, we, we obviously were a small nonprofit. We can't have civilians taking up our seats from our combat veterans because we're not paid by our donors to do that so mm-hmm. we thought well we'll write a book and that's kind of how struggle well so struggle well is really based on just the, the the concepts of everything we do in warrior path and then in the book josh and i work weave in some of our personal uh, stories mm-hmm. i think uh in hindsight although we sell a lot to, to military the military and veteran community uh I kind of wish we'd have done something different on the cover because I think we turned some civilians off thinking that it's a, a military-only book. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sales are going good. We're excited by it. And, um, uh, you know, I don't know that um, we might do a second edition somewhere down the road because we are adding a few things into it, but uh, changing a few things up in, in our philosophy of Warrior Path. But we'll see how that goes. But, yeah, it's a good book. That's, you can get it on Amazon and paperback or Kindle or, Audible. Yes, it's a great book. I know that you mentioned that there may be potential for a second edition, um, because obviously you learn as you go, and there are things that maybe you would like to change and and just or or additionally highlight. But do you have any plans to write a, a different book on any other different subject? <laughs> <clears throat> I never thought I'd write one book. Uh, to be honest <laughs> with you. Uh, I, you know, we did, Josh and I co-authored a second book this year that oh. didn't get as much publicity. Okay. Uh, we co-authored it with, with, um, doctors Tedeschi and Moore, and it's called Transformed by Trauma, uh, Stories of Post-Traumatic Growth. And it's a book of, it's, it's more a book about, it's obviously it talks about the science of post-traumatic growth, but it's more a book about other people's stories, mm-hmm. uh, who we know. And uh, some really interesting ones. Uh, Rich and Brett did a lot of the heavy lifting. Josh and I did some of the interviewing with the uh, people that are in the book um, mm-hmm. who were telling their personal stories. So that book's worth reading too. I, I'm, I, I, it's not as prescriptive, if you will, as Struggle Well. Struggle Well is kind of a recipe for being well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, transformed by trauma is really stories of other people, just, you know, which allows you again to, to understand that you're not in this, this, just, you know, any, any traumatic event. You're not, you're not the first one to go through it. And you definitely won't be the last. And you can hear stories of survivors and their journey through post-traumatic growth, the phases of post-traumatic growth, uh, by the second book, which is called Transformed by Trauma. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, in regards to writing another book, I don't think so. I, I, I have, um, some aspirations to write a kind of a, uh, I guess, biography for my grandkids that mm-hmm. you know won't get published to anybody other than my grandchildren. But I'll probably do something like that down the road. Jenna, my oldest daughter, bought me a beautiful uh, book that basically walks you through um, your uh, biography. Uh, you know, and ask all sorts of questions to include your family tree and things mm-hmm. that you can leave behind for your kids, but. As I was going through it, my handwriting is terrible. So as I was going through it, I thought maybe I'll, I'll, I'll handwrite it and then produce it in a, a better publication so that I can leave at least a copy behind for each of my grandkids. But I don't, I don't have any plans right now of writing another book. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds lovely, though. I mean, that's that's an awesome way to to share your story with your family. 
Yeah. Um, well, one of the statements that I think you have made, um, you know, along the way and maybe even in the Struggle Well book is don't let the military be the last great thing that you do. And it's something that Mike and I personally appreciate here because, as you know, we, we deal in the business of a lot of feelings, emotions, and, and people come to us, quite frankly, when when it's the situation is, is not good. And we do our very best to get them resources and help. But we can certainly relate to that statement so clearly because there seems to be just a loss once, once, you know, service members retire from the retire from the military or get separated or what have you, that there's no sense of community anymore. So we appreciate that statement. And you know, do you have any encouraging words um, to provide to our listeners in reference to that statement? Yeah. Well, I think I'm glad you, you like it, Sherry. And, and, and the truth is, it's not mine. I had a friend of mine, um, a retired Marine two-star general, mm. um, who I met when I was at AP Solutions and became very close to, uh, when we were talking one day about PTSD uh, and, you know, the the reactions to uh, combat. Uh, he talked about how the military didn't do a great job of transitioning, um, you know, people from the military to civilian life. We do a great job of, of transforming civilians into soldiers or sailors or airmen or Marines. We do a great job of that. We do a horrible job on the other side. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, I said, well, what did you, what, did you do anything different than, and he said, you know, I used to just say one thing to all my Marines, and that was, don't let the Marine Corps be the last great thing you do. Mm. And and that really resonated with me because, I, you know, one, one of, I always tell people that when you look at the two major factors that lead to suicide, one of the two major factors that lead to suicide is depression. Mm-hmm. If you look at the list of things that lead to suicide, PTSD is down at number seven. Number one is depression. Mm-hmm. Um Number two is, is substance abuse, and number three is undiagnosed or misdiagnosed traumatic brain injury. But if you look at depression and anxiety specifically, I always tell people that depression is really this 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 scenario where you are stuck living in the past. Or what I refer to as, if, if you ever saw Napoleon Dynamite, the Uncle Rico uh, story, you know, where this guy was a high school quarterback star, and that was his best memory of his life, and that. You know, every time that he wanted to, to, you know, to talk about himself, it was about how great of a high school quarterback he was. Um, and anxiety is really this whole concern about what's going to happen to me in the future. Uh, and that's really kind of how I try to describe the two issues. And I think if we understand that in the military, is a great part of our lives. Maybe for some of us, it will be the greatest mm-hmm. uh, part of our life that we understand that, that we have to continue to go on so that we don't get stuck in the past. And that's really what this general was saying is go do something else. that's great. And don't let the, you know, the military be the last great thing. It may be the greatest thing you ever did, mm-hmm. but it can't be the last great thing you did. Sure. And that's really what we, we try to, to talk to people about. And that's, you know, my saying here at Boulder Crest is to combat veterans is to come home from the battlefield and be the productive member here in society that you were over there. Right. Don't come back here and become a victim. Don't come back here and become a taker. But to come back here and become, you know, the man or woman you were on the battlefield. And 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 if you do that, you'll 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 have the start to a great life. If you become a victim, um, it's it's you know, you're, it's a sentence. It's a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for lack of a better word, it's just a it's a terrible way to live your life as a victim. Right. Right. Well, do you have any um, words of wisdom for the new EOD techs that, that are graduating uh, NAV school EOD every Friday or so? <laughs> <laughs> uh, any advice to share with new EOD techs? Okay. I, well, first of all, I'd, I'd probably trade places with any of you. Um, <laughs> I'd love I'd love the I'd love the opportunity to 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 start over mm-hmm. with the knowledge I have today, though not not what I had then, right? <laughs> um, which we can't do. Uh, I'm excited for our, our community. I mean, what, just what I've watched 
I mean, since I've since I've been you know, I've been around this community now since 1985, and and I really have seen some amazing uh, progression with training and technology and uh, fitness. I mean, to look at the the, the men and women and the physical fitness. Um, and the brain, the brain power, but mm-hmm. you know, behind it, it's a it's a whole different generation. But I'm excited for you all. Um, you know, learn from the mistakes that have been made in the past. Learn from the men and women that are on that wall across the street at graduation day, and um, and know that whatever you learn on the battlefield, that you have to share with others to keep them alive. And that's probably the best advice I could give you because it's it's, it's a great community and. I think you make the best of it. You'll you'll have a great career. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Ken. And then, um, do you have a a self care tip that you would like to share with everyone? Self care tip. So our wellness model of Watercrest is based on mind, body, spirit, and finances. Let me give you a quick tip in each one. Okay. For your mind, read. <laughs> and the the secret to a strong mind is to continually increase your wisdom and that's that's life's journey and one of the best ways you can do that is by reading pick up a book and read don't just get stuck on audio books because the visual aspect of reading words is very powerful for your mind uh, on your body stay fit right and this, this concept of a fit or fat and i know that people get injuries in their military career but all of them especially today with the technology for the most part you can overcome we have guys and gals that have lost multiple limbs who are doing some amazing things in their life because they have stayed fit. So find a way to stay fit. On the finances side, I'll give you the same advice my dad gave me, and that is don't spend more than you make. Hmm. Financial wellness is very important. If you put financial strains on your family, the stress can be a killer. Mm-hmm. So be careful on how much you spend. You don't have to spend every penny that you make, and that seems to be the military way is to go to live a life from payday to payday. Don't do it. Don't worry about buying new cars. Just figure out how to live a life where you're not spending more than you're making or saving something. And on the spirituality, I measure that in three ways. Your character, your relationships to others, and your service to others. Uh, Your service to others, your service in the military isn't enough. You have to do something for somebody else in life. Even if on the weekends you and your family just go down and to the local soup kitchen or you volunteer one day a month at a food bank or something, do something for somebody else because that not only helps somebody else, but it will make you feel so good as you, as you get away from it. So those are my four quick self-care tips. Awesome. I love it. That's great, great advice. Um, and you know, I think the financial piece really sticks out for me, Ken, because I think sometimes people believe that if they, purchase something new or shiny that it will make them so happy and quite frankly it's a temporary fix and it never it never pans out the way it's supposed to or that you want to if you're you know struggling materialistic things are not going to make it better they just aren't and and that's a personal belief of mine (laughs) no it's it's true sharon we have we have a saying here border crescent material uh, you know, material so- solutions don't fix, you know, spirituality problems, which are really what mm-hmm. are, are embedded in, 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 in the mental health issues. And that's, uh, you gotta be really careful. You know, you go buy a new car, it makes you feel good for a couple of days until you have to pay and make the first payment. Right. You realize you can't afford it. Right. Exactly. Well, um, I'm going to finish up here with just some, uh, questions about some of your favorites and um, this is just for fun and I think it's it's a good way to end some of these heavy topics that we talk about and you know an interview and have a little bit more of a lighthearted feel towards the end so can you tell me what your favorite movie is uh, I like a lot of movies but my favorite is Pulp Fiction oh really that's interesting why why Pulp Fiction <laughs> I, it's just that uh, I I just love the 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 movie. I've watched it many times, and it's just yeah. there's something about Quentin Tarantino's ways. That, uh-huh. that, you know, I've got kind of a, a little bit sick sense of humor, like most <laughs> of you guys, and uh, uh, you know, I get accused of having dad humor all the time. But it's just there's something in that movie that's just really a powerful message. So. Right. 
Um, I like, like the style. Yeah. Well, I like John Travolta's dance moves. That's my favorite. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about your favorite vacation spot over the years? Favorite vacation spot is probably Scotland. Oh, yeah. And uh, how about your favorite duty station? Uh, to Scotland for the beauty of the place. I didn't really like my job over there, but uh, Bermuda for the job. Uh-huh. Station yeah. at EOD, EOD at Bermuda, and we had a great tour out there. Yeah, you sure did. And Rian was born there, so that was really awesome. Um, we are just very grateful to you and the continued work that you do for our veteran and active duty community, our first responders, and you know, you live a life of service, and it's it's really admirable. And I think you're an excellent role model, not only to the EOD community, but to to just folks at large. And I hope that people can grasp onto something from what we talked about today, and and live a better life. It's it's important, and everyone is deserving of it. So thank you very very much, and um, give my best to Julia and the family. Uh, Sherry, thank you very much. Couldn't do it without you. I mean, just from the day, first days that you did the Wounded EOD Warrior effort and uh, to all the hard work you did today, I really appreciate it. But thank you very much for the interview this morning and have a, have a great day. Thank you, Ken. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.